You're listening to the film podcast about indie filmmaking and big budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another episode of the Film Podcast. Another day of terrible fighting inside the Ukraine as Putin puts a, another stranglehold around the throats of its people who remain defiant in defending their country. Well, joining me is a Swedish filmmaker who recently completed a film called The Contractor starring Chris Pine, Ben Foster and Kaifer Sutherland. It's a pretty decent cast and we'll talk about that as we get to know this filmmaker and how he became a film director. Tariq Salah, welcome to the film podcast. Nice to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah. So that's kind of uh, it, isn't it? it uh, the world seems to be at a little bit of a tipping point with Putin's invasion. It's just a crazy situation. And from somebody that lives in Stockholm, how does it feel living in a neighbouring country like Sweden? Oh, it, it's very tense because I'm born 1972, so I still remember the Cold War very in a sort of very direct way where we always knew where the bomb shelter was and where there was this constant because Sweden is a neutral country we've always been sort of squeezed between those big superpowers and their nuclear you know threats and all that but this time Putin have been sort of directly saying that if Sweden and Finland attempts to join NATO, that means that he will sort of, he thinks that we're in his his sphere of interest or something like that. And of course, Sweden do not accept that. We join whoever we want to join. We are very sympathetic to Ukraine's sort of, you know, they're fighting basically for all of us right now. I, I think Putin have already lost. I think you're right. I think whichever way Putin goes now, he is coming unglued. And it's just amazing the way that the Ukrainians have fought. Nobody expected them to fight quite as gallantly as the way that they they are fighting. And to come back to Stockholm, I actually had to just throw it into Google to see what the flight time is from Stockholm and Moscow. And it's only two hours. So, you know, you're reasonably close. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's close. To be honest, for me, as someone who also has, uh, you know, roots in the Middle East, I don't, I don't think the, there will be a Russian invasion here in Sweden anytime soon. And I think that one thing that this invasion, this campaign in Ukraine have shown is that Russia is not they're not as fierce as everyone thought. I think it has exposed them to be sort of a, not a paper tiger, that's too strong of a statement. I mean, it's still a very dangerous, I mean, it's the second biggest army in the world and all that, but I think, and they have nuclear weapons, which is really scary. I think it looks pretty desperate what he's doing. And that's not a good look for a, for someone who is trying to show the world how tough he is and how big he is. And I think it has also united the world in a good way. You know, just remember two or three years ago what the world looked like. I mean, it, it didn't it didn't look united at all. It looked very sort of um, fragmented. We as humans, we are constantly looking for sort of a 
an enemy to unite <laughs> against, which is which is terrible. I mean, that's a terrible truth. But Moscow is two hours away, and uh, that's of course scary. But the world is global today. I mean, just you and me talking right now. You know, mm-hmm. I know it's I know it's night over at uh, at your place, and it's morning here, and that's of course a big difference. But I mean, two filmmakers talking in real time. I mean, it's incredible. It's a new world. And since it is a a film podcast, I mean, we should really pay a little bit of attention before we get going to the president, of course, of Ukraine, Zelensky, who was an actor. I mean, this whole backstory of his, it's incredible. (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, America had a reality TV star as a president who seemed to have wanted to be an actor, who wanted to be Harrison Ford. And then you have have an actor who seems to be a really good president. Uh, I don't know. It's, It's, we're living in strange times. It's hard to even wrap your head around that. I don't know if it's what it says about politicians. That's where we are at. You know, because a lot of people were skeptical that he, you know, in the beginning it was like almost looked like something that was sort of staged. But now, I mean, it's very real. This guy is in the bunker with his soldiers, you know. He didn't leave. He, he, he stayed, you know. And it feels like someone who is really going to stay until the very bitter end. Yeah, it's, it's just pretty amazing. And to your comment about Putin... And I said it last week, we've got all of these smartphone devices that are recording nonstop all of the the bombings and just calling out Russia. When we say Russia, we're really saying Putin. It just it, oh, yeah. it's just unbelievable that he doesn't realize the corner that he's got himself into. Yeah, it it, it is very strange. And I think that again he is surrounded by a group of people that agrees with him. Let's be honest. To go back to filmmaking, a director is one of the last sort of very sort of feodal <laughs> professions where, you know, it's dictatorship, artistic dictatorship. You have to basically, at the end of the day, decide everything. But if you stop listening as a director, it's a very dangerous place to be. And if you surround yourself with yes men or yes women, that's a very dangerous place to be. I've had many colleagues, friends, close friends, they went to Hollywood and they got isolated, you know, because they were not allowed to bring their team. But I hope to talk to you about that, about my experience is that I've always put that as a demand to have my A functions with me. Not only is it because they're my friends and I trust them, it's also because I know they will tell me the truth. They will tell me the truth to my face that, Tarek, you're, you're wrong here. You're going the wrong direction. As a director, it's your prerogative to be wrong. But if you don't listen, you can end up in Ukraine believing that it will be a fast victory, believing that you will be met by the Ukrainian people waving you know, Russian flags. And instead, finding yourself with fierce resistance, not being able to take the cities as fast as you are, whereas the world, whole world unites against you. And that's not where you want to be, as, you know, if you're sort of making a film or invading a country, which is sort of the same thing. 
Well, Tarek, I guess we should start right at the very beginning. So how did you get started? How did you start this whole career off? Did you end up going to film school? No, no, I didn't. The thing is, I went to art school in Alexandria in Egypt, and I was a graffiti artist for since I was a teenager. But my father is a filmmaker. He is a stop-motion animator and uh, part, of a, part of a group of animators that was, you know, his friends with Ray Harryhausen and all these legends. So I met them when I was a kid, and he was one of the guys who built the motion control. And he did it for very strange reasons because he wanted to do camera move, movements with stop motion. Basically, you need a motion control to do that. I grew up having a, mo- ha- I had a motion control in the 80s in my father's studio that I was playing with as a kid. Mm. To be fair, I had a film school at home, basically. My father had three Mitchell cameras. So my first job when I was in high school was painting uh, matte paintings. And at that time, it was a physical thing you painted on glass. I promised myself never to work in animation because I saw how tedious it was. My father was, he worked on his own film for, for 20 years. He had done 20 minutes of film. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's insane. It's insane. It's like, but again, it's beautiful, those 20 minutes, and he's never released them, which is crazy, you know? So he made his living from making special effects for other people's films. I grew up with that, and then I... I worked at Swedish television, which is sort of SVT, which is the public broadcaster, right when HD cams and, you know, Final Cut, Avid went digital. So I learned editing and, and digital filmmaking there, not filmmaking, more I was working as a reporter and as a TV host at the Current Affairs program. And uh, that's how I got started. And then, of course, in 2009, you made Metropia, which is this animated film which has such a unique look and style to the way that you created a nightmarish dystopian story. So I want to ask you, how did you craft this film? I mentioned animated, but what is it exactly? Because I'm not sure what it is myself. Yeah. Yeah, it's Uncanny Valley. If you find it in a dictionary, you'll find Metropia right there. It's a collage technique that we use, but very advanced. And it's done in After Effects with a tool that After Effects had cancelled. And every, every character is consisting of hundreds of layers that is being manipulated. We started doing short films in that technique. And then we started playing with the thought, let's do a feature film. And I mean, that's a crazy idea. I mean, it shouldn't be done. But just an anecdote, when I had finished Metropia, it was strange because Metropia, I think it took us two and a half or three years to make that film. When it came out, it premiered in Venice. It got pretty, you know, mixed reviews. At that time, I, I didn't understand. Like, I was still reading reviews. I, I don't read reviews anymore, but... At that time, I read reviews and I was totally crushed that people didn't love it. And um, I was like confused and what have I made? And is this a monster? Is it a movie or is it a monster? And then De Niro, uh, he had started a film distribution company uh, that was connected to Tribeca, to his festival. And he invited us to New York. 
And at that time, of course, it sort of became, you know, people were starting to watch it in Hollywood. I, that was how I got agents and managers there. You know, De Niro had a dinner for us in New York. It was really crazy. I mean, it was very strange with this weird animated movie. What happened with that was I was invited to the big animation studios, both to Pixar and to Sky Blue, who, who did uh, Ice Age films. It was interesting because they didn't know my background, of course. I mean, they had only seen this weird movie and they didn't know how it was made. So they were sort of sitting with their arms crossed, a little bit suspicious. The thing is that I know that I'm breaking all the animation rules in, in Metropia. So I said right away, especially when I was at Sky Blue, I was, you know, I met with the founder and he was sort of sitting with his arms crossed. And I said to him, listen, I think Sky Blue reinvented animation the, the way the classical sort of Disney animation with the anticipation, action, reaction rules. And he right away understood, okay, so this guy knows what he's doing. And I said, listen, I want to do something else with Metropia. I wanted to create sort of a mix between real film and animation. And he said, how did you do it? How did you do it? And I said, no, listen, I... And I told him, I was totally transparent. I told him the whole technique. And then he said, okay, I'm going to bring you into our lab. And he showed me the whole inside of their lab and the rendering machines they had and all that. It was incredible. It was incredible just to sort of, uh, because he thought I was some sort of anti-animation guy <laughs> from just watching Metropia. So it's this thing with, with filmmakers, you know, it's almost like tribal, you know. <laughs> well, um, it's a classic example of what you don't understand, you know, you're scared of. And that sort of reeks of this guy in the studio. It's exactly what I said to you. How did you do it? Because I didn't know when I was watching it. And same thing. But, you know, I guess it, he works in that space. So he, he feels, well, what what's this dude up to? He's European. So, you know, we don't like him to start with. <laughs> yeah. No, but, you know, I, I'll tell you one thing. And it was my father who taught me that. He said, to pull off, because film is ultimately a magical trick, right? It is mm -hmm. sort of, a, it has very strong connections to sort of the magician. And he yes. said, the way to do a really good magi magical trick is to pull off something that's really, really difficult, that people don't think you would go through that to make a small trick. You are sort of distracting people to look at something, whereas the big trick is happening right in front of you, but you don't see it because you're looking at things that you don't think is possible, like the, those real eyes blinking and that are so expressive. So you're sort of hypnotized by that. But what's really difficult in animation is to walk and sit. And that we are not doing well because it's really difficult. Remember that in animation, it is as difficult to have someone sit down in a chair as to sort of uh, blow up a whole building. That's equally <laughs> expensive and difficult. That's why Pixar, it's so impressive what they do, that the way the characters sit down in chairs looks absolutely wonderful.
You know, what I take from this story, though, this is just a great story because here is this Metropia film that you didn't get those good reviews that you're talking about and you're thinking, oh, you know, doom and gloom. And then you get to meet De Niro. That opens up the whole system in terms of getting yourself an agent, getting a little bit of traction. You know, this is the thing with filmmaking is that you just never know what project is going to propel you to a place that you had no idea of? Now, just sticking with Metropia for a moment, because I want to ask you a question about uh, the great voices that you have got in that film, including Juliet Lewis and uh, Stellan Skarsgård. Now, these voices are such a huge part of the tone of the film, and it works so well. And voices with animation is such so important. How important was that for you when you were oh, casting? I'll tell you a very funny anecdote about that. So I love animation. I love Simpsons. I love Donald Duck. But if you think about it, that's voice acting, right? So, you know, Homer will be like, oh, well, no. You know, it's a, someone who makes a voice, right? It's not real acting in that sense. Or it is real acting, but someone who pretends to be something. So what I did was that I listened to films. I listened to all my favorite films. I ripped just the sound and I walked around in Stockholm listening to movies. And I did that for a year. And it's very interesting. So you'll realize, like, for, for example, a Paul Thomas Anderson film, like Punch Drunk Love, that I love, the voices are so important. The voices, you could actually listen to his films and they sound great. Then there are films that I like where you, you hardly don't hear the difference between the different voices. It's very difficult to just listen to them. It doesn't work. I started to find actors that I thought had very distinct ways of speaking. I knew that Vincent Gallo had a big, for example, reputation, but I, I knew that I wanted his voice because he has such a sort of unique way of speaking. Vincent Gallo is very open with his intention with his subtext, then I could direct him. And, and partly of that, part of that is that he is a director. So he knew that he helped me by, so I could say, no, you know who he is. Oh, it's this guy. Juliet Lewis, it's known she's a Scientologist. So she didn't want psychology, you know, in terms of direction. I would just tell her where she is. I would say, okay, you're in this room because they're standing in sound studios. So you have to give them the whole surrounding. And Stellan Skarsgård, it was the first time he was acting against his son, Alexander Skarsgård, who's one of my best friends. I've known Stellan for a long time. And it was funny when Stellan, he has this scene where he pushes a character in front of a train and that character is played by his son, Alex. And he really enjoyed it. He, he enjoyed, you know, playing with his son. Oh, Alex, you're actually a good actor. I didn't know that. That was like, you know, it was very interesting way of working. You know, you make like a radio play, basically. And what's interesting about the story that you're telling is it's a little bit like when you're listening to temp music. So with the voices, you, as you said, you were listening to all these different voices for about a, about a year. And of course, when you listen for temp music, I mean, gosh, the amount of hours and hours and hours you can be listening to temp music just for that right little bit of music. And it's a similar thing in terms of what you're talking with voices. And voices, I'm always so big on voices. And... And often, sometimes you get kicked out of an animated film 
because it's just not working on the character voice for the film. It's true. When you listen to a movie, and I, I, I would uh, encourage any filmmaker to do that, you will hear how these amazing actors, like uh, Pacino in, God, in The Godfather, the way his low voice did everything that he carries in every word, you can, you can really sense like what his emotion is. Uh, it's really good also because in Europe, we subtitle everything, or not in all of Europe, but in Sweden, we've always subtitled. We don't dub films. But when you work in, say, English in Hollywood, you'll basically record all the dialogue afterwards again. It will be very little that is sync. To me, that's very difficult. It's difficult because I, I love working with sync. I love working with the voices that you record in the situation. But I'm very fortunate that animation have helped me to sort of prepare for that. And a lot of Hollywood actors are actually really good at dubbing because they are used to it. It's an art. For example, Chris Pine loves going in afterwards and changing sort of the tone. You made this film, Die Nile Hilton, uh, which you won big at Sundance, winning the World Cinema Grand Jury Prize for, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But this is a really gritty crime mystery drama, and I want to ask you about the location of the film because you were shooting it in Egypt, and then three days before you started the shoot, I believe that the cast and crew and you were kicked out of the country. So just talk that through because there's going to be a lot of yeah. filmmakers thinking, how on earth did that happen? And what oh, yeah. a moment to, for that mm -hmm. to happen three days before you turn camera over. A nightmare. Yeah, no, I, I, first of all, the story, the story of the Nile Hilton incident was inspired by a true event, the equivalent to the Egyptian version of Donald Trump. This business magnate who was building a city called, in Arabic, it's called Madinati, which means my city, which is a million compounds, it's a huge ego, and sort of best friends with the president. He had an affair with a famous Lebanese singer. And when she left him, he decided to murder her. And he hired an Egyptian policeman to do it. And I'm talking about the real story that I based the script on. How I came up with the idea to make a film was that Egyptians were shocked. 2009, people were starting to whisper that maybe he was behind that murder. He had immunity he, because he was in the parliament, so he couldn't be prosecuted. But all of a sudden, the head of Egyptian state security went on television. And I just want to mention that the head of state security in Egypt, he is the most feared man in Egypt. He's basically the guy who, you know, you can disappear no one will ask questions. You know, it's like KGB or Mossad or it's, it's that kind of state security. So he goes out on television and says, uh, it's time for this guy, this business magnet was in Switzerland at the time, sort of trying to ride out the rumors. But all of a sudden, the head of state security goes on TV and says, it's time for you to come home and answer some questions. Egyptians were shocked because he's a friend of the president. He has to answer questions. As soon as he came back to Egypt, he was stripped of his immunity. He was put on trial and he was sentenced. And this trial was followed by all Egyptians. All were following this trial. It was like the O.J. Simpson trial. And at that time, 
I sort of said to myself, what if I write a script, a sort of a noir story of an Egyptian police officer that gets this investigation in his lap? So I write the script. The script, I didn't know how to end it. So I ended it with a revolution, but it was so unlikely that there was going to be a revolution in Egypt. So I just put the script in a box. I said, this is, I mean, unrealistic. It will never be a revolution in Egypt. 2011, as we all know, the revolution happens. And I was ecstatic about it. I didn't think about my script until two months later when I started to become cynical and start to realize that the army and the Muslim Brotherhood was going to sort of divide the power between the two of them. I was like, oh shit, my script. And I took it up again out of the box and I realized like, okay, it ends with this revolution. It was really badly written because I couldn't even imagine what it would be like. But I went back and I rewrote the script with the real images of the revolution in my mind. And then I was like, I mean, we're never going to make this film. How are we going to make it? But then there was this window of freedom in Egypt for two years. So we started to plan the, the, the shoot and it was fairly easy to finance. So people were excited to jump on board. We started to prep the movie in Egypt. Sisi had just become president. We started to see signs in the streets that, you know, all of a sudden state security was becoming more and more visible. And so I was like, okay, this is not good. It starts to look like the old Egypt again during Mubarak. It's uh, where, you know, the police and state security is, you know, basically threatening people. So we were prepping and prepping and prepping. We had a producer in Egypt that was sort of our local production service. Three days before we were going to start to shoot, he went to, to the interior ministry to pick up some papers. And uh, state security met him there. And they just said, listen, we have followed Tariq for weeks. We have his script. He has four days to leave the country. After that, we can't guarantee his safety, which is code language for we're going to do something to him and his crew. I gathered the crew. You know, half the crew was European and half was Egyptian. And I said to them, we're not going to start shooting in three days because we are being thrown out of the country. I knew that as a filmmaker, there's one rule. If you've spent money in prep, and at this point we had maybe spent $200,000, but that's enough. If you've spent that money and you don't make a film, you're never making a film again. Mm -hmm. Because even if people are sympathetic and would understand and all that shit, it means you're breaking the one rule as a filmmaker that you have to deliver a film. It's better to deliver a bad film than not to deliver a film at all. So what happened? <laughs> I told the crew, we have to make a film. <laughs> and I'm planning to go to Casablanca. We didn't have any permits there. So I said, try to see if we can find all the locations we need. And then I asked the crew, I said, listen, guys, I'm intending to make this film. And there's one rule. We can never use the fact that we were thrown out to excuse ourselves to make a bad film. We have to make a great film. The audience don't care. There is no disclaimer. This film was difficult to make because of this and this. They don't care. They paid a ticket. They want to be hypnotized. So my crew went with me and they went to Casablanca and we basically shot the whole film there. 
Wow. So, yeah, it's a very gritty film. And the fact that you won the World Cinema Grand Jury Prize at Sundance, I mean, you would have been pinching yourself a little bit given the fact that you got into Sundance with the film and then to take out that, I mean, there's there's a lot of satisfaction, eh? Oh, I mean, it was incredible. I mean, that story to me is just, I mean, it's probably one of the highlights of my life is that when we came to Sundance, I went back to L.A., before the festival was finished, I I went back with my family. My daughter didn't react well to the high altitude of of Salt Lake City. So she she was coughing. She was just two years at the time. So we said, okay, let's go back to LA. And everybody was like, but what if you win? I said, no, we're not winning, but it's enough. We've got great reviews. We have been, you know, we have been at Sundance. It's incredible. So we go back. My birthday is on Friday, the 28th of January. Me and my family, we have been out, you know, celebrating my birthday. And we're going back to the hotel and we have a bottle of champagne. And my phone rings. And it's the head of of Sundance, the head of programming, who calls me and says, Tariq, where are you? I'm like, I'm in LA. He's like, you have to come back. I was like, okay. He's like, you're winning the whole thing. Mm. I'm like, I'm standing there with a bottle of champagne in my hands, <laughs> not open yet. He's like, we're buying you a ticket. You, you come back tomorrow. And pick, I mean, you have to be here for the award ceremony. I mean, it was basically things were flashing in front of my eyes. I was like, whoa, I sort of knew what it meant. I knew that nothing was going to be the same after that. Yeah, and you know. as I mentioned, it, it's very gritty. And then from making the the Nile, you get this film, The Contractor. As I mentioned, it stars Chris Pine, uh, Ben Foster, and Kiefer Sutherland. I mean, it's a reasonably great cast. So tell me a little bit about how that all happened, because you know, when at Sundance, can sort of open up the doors. Oh yeah, no. What happened was that I was. You know, I was attached to several scripts at that time, several great scripts. And I was meeting with the actors. I was, you know, at one point I was going to make a film together with um, Liam Neeson. And we were going to make a film together with Judd Law. And, you know, I, I was meeting with different actors, talking about different projects. Just a few months after winning Sundance, I was directing Westworld with all these great actors. And Westworld is shot in L.A., in Hollywood, with shot on 35 millimeter cameras and all that. So I'm very happy that this happened late in my life, I must say, you know, that I wasn't too young because I sort of already knew the job, which is important because it is, of course, in America, everything is, the crew is very big. There's a lot of politics. There's a lot of things you have to sort of not focus on. But in the meanwhile, every time I was in LA working, I met with Basil, who is Basil Inawito, who is uh, running Thunder Road. And he's one of the great producers in Hollywood. I have an enormous respect for him. He and Erica Lee, who are running Thunder Road, they've made great films. You know, Wind River, it's Sicario, it's The Town, you know, they've done a lot of great films. And he sent me different scripts, and most of them didn't, I mean, they were good scripts, but it didn't speak to me. And then he sent me a script written by a first-time scriptwriter. His name is J.P. Davis. The script was great. What I liked about it, it it was a little bit dysfunctional, but what it had, it had a real heart and a character that was real. 
And uh, because of Gitmo, I, I knew a little bit about the world of contractors because in Gitmo, we are interviewing a lot of contractors. So I knew about the world and I knew that he had sort of nailed down what that world looked like. So I said to Basil, I actually really like this script. He said, can you meet with Pine? And at the time, this is before pandemic, in Hollywood, there is this thing. You cannot just Skype with an actor. You have to fly in to meet them, which is now sounds absurd, but that's just how it was. <laughs> so I flew to New York, met with Pine. We talked about the script and about the character. We like each other. We liked each other right off the bat, but we were not sure. We were, there was sort of like, we were both circling a little bit, I think. Intrigued, but we needed to talk more about it. And then I flew in one more time and met him in LA, where we got deeper into the character and what would be sort of what it would take to make that film, because it's a very physical film. Pine is an amazing actor. He's one of the most underrated actors in Hollywood. You know, there's a reason Tarantino mentioned him as one of his favorite acts. And that's, that's because he has this intensity. And you'll see it, when, you know, within the contractor, you'll see. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing performance. He was always in favor of having Ben Foster. I was a little bit, I mean, I love Ben Foster. Ben Foster is one of the best actors out there. But I was a little bit worried because Hello High Water had, you know, had gotten such great praise and I didn't want to ride off the back of that but then again I was like oh that's just the ego of a filmmaker I mean doesn't matter I mean if they have good chemistry they have good chemistry so as far as the contractor is concerned you did a reshoot and what is quite interesting here is that the reshoot was written by a different writer I think so tell me a little bit about yeah. that it's fascinating this is something as a European filmmaker it's sort of the secret uh, the, in Hollywood is that because they have money, they can make the whole film and it's great. And then you sit there in a cinema with an audience and you look at the film and you say, if you could redo something here to make it even better, what would you do? From a European point of view, that door is closed. You cannot ask yourself that question because you can't afford it. I mean, that's like shooting another film. But in Hollywood, you, you can do that. And to me, it was almost like opening a forbidden door. You know, I was like, okay. Yeah. And then to do a reshoot and a rewrite of an existing film, it's really, really difficult. It's almost like you have to be, you have to be very experienced. So they bring in, there is, say, there are five or 10 guys in Hollywood that can do a rewrite like that. And one of them is, Eric Warren Singer is an amazing writer. He wrote American Hustle, you know, the new Top mm. Gun film. I mean, he's, he's an amazing writer. So he watches the film. I mean, he's hired by, by the studio and by Thunder Road. And he calls me and he says, Tariq, so I love the film. Here is what I think can be better. I think the film is about fatherhood. And I was like, yes, that's exactly what it's about. And that's just that, that he understood the theme of the film. And he said, what he's up against is the ghost of his father. And I said, yeah. He said, that means we have to add a character. We have to have a physical father figure here. And to me, the script, the original script, that is a great script, J.P. Davis had written flashbacks, but I have a problem with flashbacks. 
in general. Uh, and not, it sometimes can be beautiful, but, you know, one thing is, for me, is that film in itself is hypnosis. If you yeah. watch a film, you are basically in someone else's time frame and in a different world, right? You're being a different human being. You're being the protagonist of that film for two hours. But those two hours could be two years or ten years. Or it could be real time, depending on what, what the filmmaker that is hypnosing you is telling you that it is. So when you do a flashback, you are waking up the audience out of the hypnosis. You are making them aware of that you're watching a film. Or if you are successful, the, the hypnosis becomes deeper. But then you have to be very aware of what the flashback is so that it's not just convenient for you as a storyteller to tell information. It still has to be an experience. So my, my feeling was that if this character has flashbacks, it means that his past is more present than the present. It means that the past is so vivid for him that it feels more real than the reality is in now. So the way I shot his past was that I made it even more sort of, uh, and how do you do that? I mean, there are, you use wider lenses, you're closer to the character, you use sound like you hear breath, you hear the sound of the clothes, you know, things that make it feel even more present, right? Maybe even taking, you know, trying not to use too much score there so that it feels like, oh, I'm really here. You hear the crackle of, of the sound when you take footsteps, you know, you create sort of a, a presence. Eric Singer, he wrote, he wrote the character, basically, that the Kiefer Sunland ca character. And we casted Kiefer for that and we shot probably had the same budget as a regular Swedish film would have for the reshoot, you know. And it was, uh, it was a very strange experience as a filmmaker, a great experience, I must say. Because it's fascinating, the idea that you can continue to make the film, you know, and I think that all of us as filmmakers have had that experience that when you've, I mean, I continue to edit my films and shoot my films long after been, they've had premieres. I revisit them constantly. What would I have done today? What have, with what I know today? What, how would I have done it differently? That's a game I play constantly. But with, um, with the contractor, the difference was I was able to actually do it, which is incredible. I will say, of course, you pay a price because when you keep all these doors open, you don't commit. And I think that's the biggest problem with Hollywood films is that they're not fully committed to an idea or to a vision. Where it's like when you have to commit to an idea, when you write the script and it has to be perfect and you commit to it, you lean in. And that's why a lot of the author filmmakers, they don't, they, for example, will shoot with one camera, not several cameras because they want to commit. They want to sort of have a very singular uh, point of view. Yeah, fascinating. It's a fascinating 
talk because you're not only talking about introducing a character, but the the flashbacks take it takes it down another level of the rabbit hole, and to actually fuse and sync all of that up, it's not an easy exercise to do. So somehow through all of that, you've been able to accomplish that and get the film out and. Yeah, what a great story that is for our filmmakers. So what is happening next, uh, Tarek? Where, where are you off to now? Because I did have a look on IMDb and I did see that there is a Liam Neeson film. Is that the film that was in the <coughs> no, past or is that coming that's up? In the, that's in the past for, for now. <laughs> it's right. in the past okay. and you never know what your life takes you. But I am in the final process of a film I shot in Istanbul last summer. It's a film in Arabic again, a thriller, a very ambitious uh, film about sort of a, in the name of the rose, but takes place in a religious university in Egypt. And then I am writing a TV series with Bo Willeman, who created House of Cards, and that's very exciting. So I was in New York before Christmas working with him and it's very, very fascinating because I, I love to write. I think writing for me is more fun than directing. So the directing part is more, it's more a struggle, but you know, and I love editing too, but the actual shoot I think is kind of gruesome. Uh, <laughs> it's gruesome, all right. Yeah, especially if you've got to move locations three days before the shoot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but it's always also this thing that it's such a logistic. I mean, it, it, that's why always when I see footage of war on, on TV, I think about the logistics. I'm thinking like, holy shit. You know, people were saying like, for example, people were saying when Putin was invading Ukraine and we're like, oh, why didn't he start the invasion in the middle of the night? Why did he start in the morning? It would be strategically smarter to do it in the night, you know, and they are good at night. They have better equipment than the Ukrainians have for night fighting. And I think the simple answer is that the logistics didn't work, that he didn't get the units moving in time. And uh, I know all about that, <laughs> you know, what it's like to move. And especially like, I have ended up in a situation where I work on very, very big shoots with hundreds of people. And it's both in Hollywood and when I did Nile Hilton was huge crew and Westworld is huge. I mean, six cameras rolling at the same time, 35 millimeter, you know, it's crazy. It's huge set pieces. I sort of long for the small, for, I dream back to the documentary days when you carry your own equipment and you, you know, you just have a mic and a camera. It's just be a beautiful way of working, you know. And just before I let you go, talking of Westworld, Ray Donovan, tell us a little bit about the episode that you did direct and Times Square. Yeah, it was incredible. So as a graffiti writer, you know, New York is the mecca for graffiti writers. That's where it sort of started. And, you know, so I was, I, I always went to New York when I was young, just as a graffiti writer. So I was very excited to know that I was going to shoot Ray Donovan in New York and with these great act actors, you know, Lev Schreiber and Jon Voigt and all these great guys. You know, you get your episode two weeks before you start to prep. It's very quick, the way yeah. those things come together. And when I read the script, I see that the episode ends with 
Liev Schreiber, his character Ray Donovan, breaking down in the middle of Times Square. And I'm like, okay, holy shit, we're going to shoot at Times Square in the middle of the night. So we close off this little square in the middle of Times Square. The scene is basically that Ray, Ray is breaking down after having had this scene with his daughter with where his daughter basically breaks up with him and says, I don't want anything to do with you, Dad. Everything he touches turns to shit. And he just steps out of the bar where he meets his, met his daughter and he goes into Times Square and he attacks a policeman who's trying to help him. And they wrestle him down and he's basically having a full meltdown. And Liev, who's very experienced actor, has done like, you know, at, up at this point, 50 episodes. I can just see in his eyes as he steps into Times Square, like he's like, holy shit, <laughs> you know, this just thousands of people. And the first thing that happens before we, we have put up this whole crane because we're going to do um, a, a crane shot uh, and a chair comes flying in <laughs> into our set. And I'm like, and someone just screams, like, hey, fuck you guys. And we're like, okay, <laughs> here we go. We're on Times Square. <laughs> and it's like, so it's very real, the whole energy, but it, it's just amazing the, the feeling of being there in the middle of the world, in the middle of universe with a crew shooting. It, it just brought me back to the feeling of documentary filmmaking where you're like, okay, we just have to capture this at this moment. And, and Liev, who's doing a lot of his own stunts, who's a very physical actor, he just tells the two stuntmen who plays the policeman, he's like, go at it, just go. You know, don't force me to act. Just wrestle me down for real, basically. And uh, yeah, it was it was incredible. It was incredible. And again, you have to pinch your arm and say, wow, Tarek, if you would have known when you were 15 years old in Sweden that you were going to stand in Times Square with a whole film crew shooting, <laughs> I mean, I, I would have slap, slapped the person saying that and say, hey, stop lying to me. Stop putting these big dreams into my head, you know? <laughs> you know, we have to rem remind ourselves as filmmakers how lucky we are to get to do what we do. I, I sometimes say that if people knew how much fun it was, it would be illegal to make films, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Well, it's a great end point, and I'll have to go back and watch that episode now so that I can, you know, just put everything in perspective. It's Tarek shooting guerrilla style with uh, Hollywood sort of uh, a budget and A-list cast. So, yeah. All right. Well, look, hey, thanks so much for spending some time with us on the film podcast. That's a really good breakdown of some of the things that you've been doing since you started out, really. And uh, wish you all the very best. And let's hope Thank we get so out much. of this. Yeah, let's hope we get out of this war um, before it starts going too <laughs> further afield. Yeah. Once again, thanks for coming on to the film podcast. Thank you, too. Thanks. You've been listening to The Film Podcast with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.